It's Monday, March 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy Monday. The big melt has begun. Happy Monday indeed. I tell you what, we were talking about this before taping. and I, I have to get this out there because I know my wife will probably listen to this at some point. <laughs> and we essentially have, I mean, we have a South Carolina showdown tonight. With Wofford and In college Furman. basketball. Yeah, they're duking it out for the right to go to the big dance. It's the Southern Conference Championship. And you went to Wofford. I went to Wofford. And your wife? My wife went to Furman. Wow. It's it's essentially a house divided right now. Now, she's out of town, of course, so you know I, I'm getting a little bit of a skate on this one. But, but we will probably talk a little smack on Twitter back and forth. This this is a big deal, man. If Wofford wins tonight, this is the fourth time in six years they get back to the big dance. So, when was the last time Furman made the tournament? That's, it's Well, I don't know. So, I'm not sure of their tournament history, uh, but I did see this is the first time in 13 years they had gotten back to the Southern Conference Final. And, I mean, let's be very clear. This has been this is the number 10 seed Furman was. They've had a fantastic tournament. And this is a team Sounds like, like Cinderella. It, well, it is. And, and I tell you, if there's one team, see, the Wofford-Furman rivalry is essentially like UNC-Duke. I mean, obviously not to that scale, but it, but for us, that's, that's basically what it is. And I mean, if there's one team that Wofford doesn't want to be playing tonight, it's Furman. So I, I, I imagine it'll be a, a fun game to watch. I'm going to be rooting for Furman. Just, God. They haven't been there in a while. <sighs> uh, we're going to talk lumber liquidators. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. But let's start with McDonald's. And however your job is going, <laughs> just take solace in the fact that you're not Steve Easterbrook, who became CEO of McDonald's on March 1st. And it has been just a heck of a first nine days for Steve. Uh, last week, he met with franchisees to talk about their chicken sourcing. We'll get to that in a second. But today, <laughs> the news is their same-store sales for February, which are just bad. They're, I'm, I'm not going to say they're horrible. Maybe you will. But globally, same-store sales down 1.7%. Here in the U.S., down 4.4%. Yeah. There's just no way to look at this as being anything other than just bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're right. You can't really spin it any other way. And I mean, it's not. It's not like it's terribly surprising. I mean, you know, the, the McDonald's. The biggest advantage they have is they have just that tremendous scale. I mean, there seems like a restaurant every corner, uh, which is fine. But it really doesn't matter if people aren't going to them. And and the reason why we look at those same store sales is because it's really it, it's indicative of. Traffic and you know if you have to keep those stores open and your traffic is down, I mean not only are you getting you know or not only are you getting hit on the sales line, but then you have to pay those operating expenses to keep those stores open, and so then your operating income gets gets pelted and which you know all trickles down to the bottom line. It just affects the overall profitability of the business, and so you know you look on the flip side of sort of how this restaurant space is changing and how people are becoming a bit more. Uh, you know, aware of what they're eating, and, and they're going to, to other concepts out there. Um, I mean, even even just from a burger joint perspective. I mean, you look at something like Five Guys, for example, and and yeah, that's that's burgers and fries too. But it's it's an immensely greater experience from top to bottom going to a Five Guys than it is going to McDonald's. And, and so, even with Easterbrook taking the helm at such a difficult time, it's like you know one of those things where I mean, he, he can only get better. Well, maybe, but actually, maybe not, because it's not. I think it goes. It, it, this extends beyond leadership. I mean, I think this really does play into the brand and what that brand communicates. And I talked about this a lot. I mean, what was its greatest competitive advantage for so long in communicating a wonderful value for for consumers? Well, now the consumer isn't so focused on that value. 
I mean, I was reading a story about, I think it was, it was maybe Japan, where someone found a piece of vinyl in a chicken McNugget. And, and so, I mean, think about that. You go into McDonald's and you get your food and it just kind of comes from this chute and you don't really know who made it, how it was made or when it was made versus all of these other places where you go in and it's essentially made right there in front of you. That's that's a big difference. And I think people care about that. And I think these numbers are bearing that out. I don't know if this television commercial played outside the United States. I know it, I know it played during the Super Bowl, so, so maybe it was. But do you remember this commercial that they ran about a month ago and it was the whole... Um, pay with loving <laughs> yeah. thing where they had the hidden camera and it's like, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, your your mail is free. Uh, call your mom, you know, and that, that sort of thing. I just saw a survey that, in terms of likability, it was the number one rated commercial that aired during the Super Bowl. Really? So people like the ad. Presumably, it le- it leads to a slightly greater affinity for McDonald's. But it doesn't translate into sales. It's not moving the needle on sales. No, and I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised by that because I thought the ad was kind of creepy, to be honest with you. I mean, it just, it's kind of a weird, you know, I mean, just go to the store and pay for your meal. And I mean, now you're making this experience longer than it has to be. I mean, I guess their heart was in the right place. Um, you know, again, I mean, they, the, the bottom line, it just comes down to what consumers want. And it's just appearing more and more that they don't want. Traditional fast food that that you know you and I grew up on. It's it's a much different ball game today, and I mean I know that they believe they can bring this into the 21st century and become a modern day burger place, as, as they say. But I, I'm I'm skeptical that they can that they can just flick a switch and do that. Well, one thing that Easterbrook is trying to do, uh, and this is when he met with the franchisees last week to talk about how. McDonald's is going to start sourcing chicken raised without human antibiotics. This is something they're going to try to accomplish within the next two years. I hasten to point out, this is something that they're going to do in the United States, but right. not outside. So, yeah. 14,000 locations in the U.S., 22,000 locations outside. It seems like the sort of thing that potentially could help in the long run, but... and it, and it. it it does seem like a move in the right direction, yeah. But then you get to what is this going to cost, and yep. h- how are they going to implement it? And yeah, I mean, there are a lot of questions there. I mean, it is. I agree with you. It it is a a good move. It's the right move. I think it's a smart move on their part. I mean, it's it's better late than never in regard to that. But um, I mean, I mean, given their scale too, it'll be interesting to see sort of how this plays out on all of their suppliers. I mean, I think you know this will help sort of change that supply chain behavior as well. Um, and, and so the implications of that longer term certainly are better for better for all of us, I think, uh, as more restaurants care more about things like this. Uh, but it will cost more to implement. It is only chicken. It's going to take like two years to implement this. And then to your point about the quality control, I mean, that's it's worth remembering McDonald's is generally franchised. And, and, and you know, while franchises allow the, the concept to grow more quickly, uh, the quality control is always a concern. It's it's much more difficult to manage. Um, and then you know how far do they want to take this? Because that menu is so involved. They have so many ingredients to make up that menu. Uh, I mean, we saw with Chipotle making that effort to go GMO free, and they're essentially there now. But but you know that's also a concept that was founded on food with integrity, whereas you know McDonald's wasn't. So it it, it is a wonderful first step. I do appreciate the fact that they're doing it. 
Um, but if this is the direction in which they want to go, it's going to take a long time to get there, and it is going to cost them to do it. And, and at the end of the day, I'm not sure that the consumer actually really cares about that at McDonald's as much. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just not sure that the trust is necessarily there. Right, and, and and maybe over time that changes, but but they are going to have to work really hard to sort of you know rebrand this company and, and communicate a, a brand that's messaging uh, you know a new generation and generations to come. Shares of lumber liquidators down another six percent this morning. Worth pointing out that a year ago this was a stock that was trading north of one hundred dollars a share, and right now it's in the low thirties, and. We were talking right before we started taping. If you go onto the news feed on any financial portal and type in a ticker, the news feed for lumber liquidators right now, the majority of the stories are law firms announcing class action suits against lumber liquidators. And I'm not sure. I think we're almost at the point with this story where it almost doesn't matter. If they are completely exonerated, I mean, to to some extent it does, but if from this point on absolutely everything goes right for lumber liquidators, I feel like the brand damage alone has really hurt them. Yeah, I I, I tend to. I'm not agree saying there. it's crippled them, and I'm not saying it's going to bankrupt them, and this is a stock going to zero. But it's hard to see how they are able to really rebuild their image in any meaningful way. In a short amount of time, yeah, it's it's going to be really difficult. I mean, looking at at shares right now, I mean, I can't believe they're they're down nine percent now. I mean, they're just piling on. I mean, this is a story for for shareholders. This stock, it's going to get worse before it gets better, and and that's I think investors out there need to know that. So, if you own shares of lumber lumber liquidators, I, I would I would approach this with that philosophy in mind: is that it is going to get worse before it gets better. This isn't something where I would advise someone to just back up the truck because it's a stock that's dirt cheap and this is an overreaction. I mean, normally I'm one to to condemn these class action share these class action lawsuits on behalf of shareholders because most of the time they seem to be very frivolous. I think in this case this is not frivolous. This is certainly warranted. I mean, they have they have a problem here to to some degree, um, and and how they how they overcome it, I'm not sure. I saw. Uh, where Whitney Tilson, who really was the one who sort of spearheaded this story from the get-go with 60 Minutes, uh, added to a short position they communicated on Friday, and so I mean that that right there is pretty. You got stones to do that, like because normally it's like he, he's carrying this big short position, and right now it's working out really well for right. him. Right, and on behalf of of the folks investing with his fund, I mean. He's making a really ballsy statement there, going even further with this short. He's thinking this thing has more, more, uh, more downside, and I don't necessarily disagree. I mean, when you look at all the lawsuits that are coming to play here, I mean, e- even if they're exonerated, like you said, I mean, they're going to have a lot of costs involved with this in order to defend themselves, in order to market themselves, in order to try to save that brand name. Their balance sheet just has a very minimal amount of cash on it, and, and f- for my purposes, I would just erase that cash now. That cash is gone. That's going to be something they're going to have to burn on this. Uh, the, the, you know, they're going to be working capital needs for this company for the for the foreseeable future, and 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 recovering, you know, from from a, a brand hit like this. 
I mean, I got <laughs> something in the mail on Friday, like some big spring offer from Lumber Liquidators, and, and I think we're probably going to see a lot more pro- promotional offers from them in the future. And it's not to say they can't recover and continue to, to, to go on with business, but it is fundamentally going to be a different story uh, going forward. I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical they'll be able to ever maintain the same kinds of margins that they did before, which is what really made this investment thesis to begin with. Um, and so, yeah, I, I look at this as something that can get worse before it gets better. And even after it gets better, I'm not sure this is something I even want to be a part of anyway. We felt that way over at MVP. Uh, we ultimately ended up selling our whole position because while we were a little bit on the fence with the company to begin with, this really was what took us over the top. And, um, you know, I mean, it may bounce back, it may recover okay, but, but long term, this is still not a company that we really want to be a part of. You make a great point about how much cash they have because if you just look quickly at their balance sheet, it's a relatively healthy balance sheet, yeah. and they're you know the the assets pretty significantly outweigh the liabilities, but so much of it is inventory and mm-hmm. equipment and and that sort of thing. Yep. Radio at fool dot com is our email address, uh, possibly the shortest email we've ever gotten from Tim Casby in Russia, um, who sent an email last week, uh, just with the words Christine Day. Christine Day oh, yeah, 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 was, right. was the former CEO at Lululemon Athletica. We were trying to, we couldn't come up with her last name. And I remembered it on the ride home. I'm sitting there thinking on the ride home from work that day. I was like, Day. It was Christine Day. Christine Day. Christine Day is the CEO that Abercrombie and Fitch should contact and see if they can lure her to run their business. From Mike Thompson in Lake Worth, Florida, who writes, "You guys sometimes quote stats referring to percentage of business volume coming from mobile." Uh, as in Wayfair getting 50% of their business from mobile, you discussed this as if it were exclusively people using their phones while out and about. I wonder about the large number of people using tablets while at home, which I consider to be usage more akin to that of home desktops. Um, I also wonder if companies try to suss these numbers out. At my home, we rarely use our desktop or laptop. We have three iPads and do almost all browsing and shopping on them using home Wi-Fi. We never shop or do banking using our phones or using public Wi-Fi. So I guess my web usage looks like mobile customers to companies, even though I do 100% of it from home. It's a a great point. And I, I hadn't really thought about sort of that level of nuance where... He's right, you know, in terms of the way he's doing it, and presumably others. He's in his home. It, it really, it, you know, it's not because when I think about people shopping on mobile, I think about someone doing it on their phone. Yeah, and and in most cases, that's that's what it is. I mean, phones are generally the the primary mobile property. Now, I will say the tablets are are included with that, and uh, I mean certainly. Some other some companies may may sort of define it their own way. I mean, I'll use Wayfair as an example here. Um, just going through their most recent 10Q, and I'll just read a quick statement from here. It says, "Mobile is an increasingly important part of our business, especially for Joss and Maine. We launched our mobile applications for Joss and Maine in 2012 and Wayfair.com in 2014. Due to the relative newness of smartphones, tablets, and mobile shopping in general, we do not know if this increase in mobile use will continue." So you can see there that they're including tablets in that. Um, and more and more companies now are developing apps, right? I mean, it's 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 that's what really distinguishes other other than sort of the the, the mobile nature of the device. Uh, that's what distinguishes 
uh, those devices from your traditional de- desktop experience, you know. And so you're seeing these companies now develop their apps that are uh, more catered towards towards that mobile device. And so as time goes on, I think yeah, you're going to see more and more companies moving over towards that app environment, focusing on getting people towards those apps more and more often because. You know, it's a lot easier to say at any point in time during the day, whether I'm on my phone or my tablet, I can open up that app and order or shop, uh, versus feeling like I have to go use a desktop. And, and, and I mean, you know, the 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 World Mobile uh, Congress just just finished up here. I think that was in Barcelona, um, and and tablets are, are a very big part of of that discussion there as well. Um, so I, I expect as time goes on to see much more emphasis placed on mobiles, mobile technology. That's phones and tablets, and, and really a big focus on those apps and developing those apps, making them more robust and more functional. We are taping this before Apple has their event this ah, yeah, afternoon. That's right. It'll be interesting to see the if watch. there's any shopping capability built into the iWatch. Yeah, it's weird, you know. I mean, we, we You have to figure Apple Pay is part of that. I well, I would hope. I mean, that to me seems to be the most sensible part of it. Like I I Yeah, I mean, I it, you know, we went from this sort of move to try to make phones nice and small, and then they said, "Okay, well, small has been done and that's great. Let's let's make them a little bigger." You know, now you got Apple it makes, makes the six and the six plus, and they're real big. And and now they're going to like this iPhone on your wrist. It's really tiny, and I gotta feel like the navigation on that thing's gotta be really weird, really difficult. I mean, I, I you know, fat finger things on my phone all the time. I mean, so the watch. I mean, with the Apple Pay and maybe the the health the health functions, which I understand. Uh, are going to be uh, less robust than they initially had hoped for because of, of functionality problems. Um, I, I'm more. I, I think the Apple Watch will probably just do okay. Maybe this first go around. Probably most Apple fanboys will go out and buy one. Um, I'm more interested in the implications of of what will come from this Apple Watch. I don't necessarily think the Apple Watch is going to be earth shattering, but I do think it's going to give them some ideas on how to sort of develop and advance this wearables. Uh, you know, movement that is really just underway. There are a lot of smart people who work here at the Motley Fool. Yes, there are a lot of smart people who work on Wall Street. But there are those occasions, and I think this is one of those times of which it is said, nobody knows anything. And I think all you need to do is look at the range of projections of how many iWatches various analysts <laughs> expect them to sell. And you can very quickly come to the conclusion that nobody knows anything. No, I mean they. they, <laughs> because they like, there are some people saying we think they can sell five to ten million in yeah. the first year, and then at the other end, you've got people saying there are analysts who are saying we think the market for this in the first year is fifty to a hundred million. Fifty to a hundred million. That that to me just sounds way over the top. I mean, they they'll do surveys of of individuals that own iPhones, and then. Um, you know, how likely would you be to go get an Apple Watch? And that'll really give you a good idea because the watch has to be tethered to the phone. So if you don't have an iPhone, you're not going to probably get an, an Apple Watch. Um, yeah, I, I feel like, again, I mean, this is this is something that I, I don't see the functionality of a smartwatch really yet. To me, it's just not, I'm not I'm not quite sold on it. And, and this isn't going to be something that really moves the bottom line for Apple either way. I mean, it's going to be something that gives them a new product release, and that's great. I mean, this quite honestly, the first product release from Apple, and as long as I can remember, where I have zero interest in getting one, so to me, that's just kind of interesting. And I'm not trying to extrapolate that to, to the entire market, but 
But uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's probably as robust as thirty to fifteen million. I, I'm thinking maybe you know a couple million. If they saw that, they got to feel pretty good about that. We shall see. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Borg. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. Go Furman, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>